Welcome back to Savior. Uh, we are in our, our fifth look at the book of Colossians. We're in chapter 3, and we're going to be skating through the entire chapter and the very first verse of chapter 4 today. Um, and the question we've been asking ourselves and, and kind of inspecting as we're eavesdropping on this letter between the Apostle Paul and the Colossian church in the first century is the, is the question of what kind of church does God want us to be? What kind of church does, uh, does God want his church to be any church, not just the Colossian church, but our church and every church uh, that's uh, that's around in the area, all, you know, all over the globe. Um, and uh, our answer to that, our, the, the very simple answer in the subtitle of, of this whole series is that God wants a Christ-centered church. And I think by now, if you've been with us for the past few weeks, it should be very apparent to you that God wants a Christ-centered church. There's a uh, an unmistakable tone throughout this whole letter that everything just keeps getting connected back to Jesus. And anything that is apart from Jesus, the Apostle Paul is saying, is is some kind of aberrant teaching, some human tradition, some self-made religion, etc. And so, uh, when we ask the question, what kind of church does God want us to be? Our answer is a Christ-centered church. And the reason why is because that... That's the mark. That's that's the the origin and the purpose and the meaning and the destiny of the church, right? And so uh, there, there's an interesting uh, there's an interesting metaphor to it, an archery term. Uh, if if you if you know your mark, if you know your target, and that's what you're centering on, that's what you're aiming for, then when you're off target, then you miss. And in archery, to miss the mark. Uh, the, the term for that, when you go back to, to the Greek and, uh, and even to the Hebrew, it's this idea of sin. The word sin means to miss the mark. It means that you are off the center, off, off your target. When, uh, when God wants a Christ-centered church, if ever we center on something else, if ever we start teaching something else or praying uh, with, with something else in mind, if ever, if, if ever that is not the mark, then we have missed the mark. We are in sin. Uh, that's a big deal for us because uh, because when we say we want a Christ-centered church, the, the idea of it is we want a church that, that's not built on something else, on something sinful, on something uh, that will detour us in, a, uh, in a, a direction that's bound for death and destruction. Sin breaks relationships. Sin is not just a moral quality. It's, it, it, it breaks relationships, namely three in particular, your relationship with God, your relationship with other people, and your relationship with yourself. Right? That's, that's what sin does. It breaks relationships. It's not just a, a, a moral uh, quality. It's not just a vice. It's a relational issue. And it, uh, it, it, it destroys intimacy with God, with other people, and with ourselves. Invariably, it leads to death. It leads to shame. Uh, and it, it, it's, it's, the, it's the, the road that, that creation was never meant for. Creation was meant for glory. And yet, sin takes us into, into a whole different path, into one of death and shame. Well, uh, the Apostle Paul is going to ta- talk about uh, sin, particularly in, uh, in in this particular se- particularly in this section. Sorry, and, uh, and in chapter three, we're going to we're going to talk about how our relationships are affected when we go off target. And what the Apostle Paul will do is he'll he'll start to maneuver us back and say uh, everything needs to be Christ centered. Your relationships need to be Christ centered, uh, and that that'll affect your intimacy with God and with each other, with yourself. You know, uh, you could even, by association corollary, you could say even with creation, with the environment, uh, everything is affected by, um, by being Christ-centered, by, by keeping him as your target. So if you've got your Bibles, you're in Colossians chapter 3, and those of you who are taking notes, uh, we're going we're gonna to take it in, uh, like, I guess, 
five sections, okay? Five sections. There are going to be four through the text and then a fifth one just to kind of land the plane. Uh, and if you're taking notes, we'll, we'll, we'll go like this. We'll, we'll go with section one, which is the way that you are. That's verses one through four. The way that you are. And then section two will be the way that you were. Verses five through 11. All right, the way that you were. And then the way that he is, that's verses 12 through 17. And then the way that it looks, verses 18 through chapter 4, verse 1. And then to kind of land it all and, and make sense of it, to process it, the, we'll call the last section the way that it works. Right? So you got the, the way that you are, the way that you were, the way that he is, the way that it looks, and the way that it works. Right? Now you have a semblance of structure and, uh, and movement and, and progress as we go through, though I've given nothing away. All right, let's start with uh, the way that you are in verses 1 through 4 of chapter 3, Colossians. This is what it says. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Now, stop there for a second, okay? Uh, the whole chapter here, this, this whole section of thought, this whole unit of thought, begins with an if statement. If then you have been raised with Christ, meaning if you are a Christian, if you trust in Jesus, if you have saving faith, right? But the if is, a, it's a, I don't know, it's a tilted if. You know, uh, Paul already knows that the Colossian church is full of believers, he knows that. He says it in, in uh, chapter 2, verse 13. He's like, you know, you used to be dead in your trespasses, but God made you alive. So you have been raised with Christ. So when he's saying, if then you have been raised with Christ, that's a uh, th that's not like a, a conditional statement on like the if, maybe. But he's he's uh, starting with the, uh, the presumption of a positive. He's saying, since you have been raised with Christ, because you are a Christian, if you've been ra raised with Christ, which you are, if then, since you have been raised with Christ, and that's, that's kind of how he proceeds with this argument. He's saying, uh, if you're a Christian, set your mind on things above. Since you're a Christian, set your mind on things above. And uh, above is, is just his way of saying things in heaven, things where, uh, he, he, he says, that's where Jesus is, right? Set your mind where Jesus is. He's, he's there. He's at the right hand of God. And your life is hidden with him. And Christ is your life. And he keeps connecting you and Jesus. And he keeps saying, like, that's what belongs together, not the stuff on earth. Don't put your mind here. Put your mind where it belongs. Center it on the mark. Put it on Jesus. Everything here dies. Everything here breaks and decays and fades and falls apart. Everything here is temporary. Nothing here lasts. Certainly not us. Certainly not our bodies. Right? But where Christ is, there's no death. That's where your life is hidden. That's where your life is secure. That's where your spirit will endure. It's with him in heaven. No middle step, no additional process. You are with Christ now. Right? There's already the present tense reality that he injects into this. Your life is with Christ. Christ is your life. He's the source, meaning, purpose, and destiny of you. And the only way your life is with Christ is if you have died with Christ and been raised with him, meaning uh, whatever way you used to be, it has to be dead and it has to be gone. 
And there's this language that says you have this completely new life. You've been raised with him, meaning the life you live now is not the life you had before. You were dead in your trespasses, and now God made you alive with Christ. And there's a, this, is, uh, this language of a newness of life, a new life that you have in him, uh, and it's not at all like the way you used to be. And this is the part that, uh, that I think is uh, so intimidating about the gospel. Because when you hear this kind of stuff, when you hear passages that say that if anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation, the old is gone, the new has come, then I don't know about you, but I sit there and spiral back into how I've been behaving this whole week, and I start going, wait a minute, how different am I from, from where I used to be at? I still struggle with the same things. I still wrestle with the same issues. I feel like I don't have victory over, over the same old sins, the same old, the same old problems, same old habits that I've been uh, wrestling with all my life. And yet we got passages like this that says, you know, if you've been raised with Christ, seek things that are above, put, set your mind on Christ. The, you know, the old you is dead. It's gone. And there's this new, uh, there's this new life that you have in Jesus. And I, I sit there and I wonder, is that true? Do I have that? Consider a few things about this, right? If you are dead to the world, and if you're alive with Christ, if your life is with Christ, right? Just, just uh, process that statement. If your life is with Christ. Well, first, if your life is with Christ, you don't need any other mediator, any other ritual, any other divine revelation in order to get to Jesus. Your life is with him. You don't need some other means to communicate to him or to be intimate with him. You don't need some middle step. Your life is with Christ. Second thought, uh, if your life is with Christ, you have direct access to God, right? Jesus is God. If, 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 uh, if your life is with Christ, you have direct access to God. Uh, you don't have to ever wonder whether or not he hears you. You don't have to wonder whether or not he cares about you. Right? There's a, the connectedness matters to him and he maintains that and he sustains it eternally for a reason. That's a value statement. Your life is with Christ. He's holding on to it. The third thought. If your life is with Christ, you have no reason to think you'll ever lose him. Right? What Jesus gains, he never loses. What God has in his hand, no one can take out of his hand. Right? And so if your life is with Christ, that's your present and future guarantee. The fact that you are with Christ now means you will always be with them. You will never be able to lose your salvation. If you have saving faith, that's not something that can, that can be lost. It's not something that, uh, that someone can wrestle out of you. It's not something that someone can force you to give up. Saving faith is an indestructible relationship with him. If, you, if your life is with Christ, you will not lose him. And he won't lose you. A fourth thought, if your life is with Christ, um, it, it does mean that when he comes back in true glory, that's when you will be revealed in true glory, right? And it, it'll be a glory that he gives you. It's not like, it's not just one that, that's uh, hiding inside you. It's one that he, he shares with you, right? It comes from him. But the fact that, uh, that he's going to return in, 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 in glory, that there's going to be this final state and this final condition tells you in this very comforting way, that the way you are right now is not your final state and your final condition, right? 
That's a, that's a, that's a promise the scripture makes that there, there's, there's something that's going to happen when Christ returns. He's going to bring all his people with him. And that's when glory will take place. That's what we're bound for. Don't think that we're stuck the way that we are. Right? There's a, um, the idea that Jesus will return and that when he returns, he will, he will, uh, he'll bring us with him and, and there'll be glory. That means that we are still in process, right? This idea of new creation, old creation, you have to understand the process of it. And we're going to kind of unpack that as we go, right? Uh, that's the way that you are. And this is, this is what Paul is saying. If you're raised with Christ, if, if, if you're a Christian, if, if you have faith in Jesus, then set your mind on things that are above, and he gives you this this kind of uh, categorical statement, right? You're you're dead to sin. You're alive in Christ. That's that's what's true. Your life is hidden with Christ. It's connected to Jesus. Christ is your life. Um, the, the world is not. You will appear with him in glory, and that frames all the thoughts that are now going to unpack in the rest of the chapter. So he says that's if that's the way you are, or since that's the way you are, that's the way you should live. Since you're a Christian, your mind should be set on things above. Now, he's going to jump back and say, let's talk about the way that you were. And he's going to, he's going to go back into the past, right? Uh, verse 5 through 11, he talks about the way that you were. This is what he says. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. In these two, you, uh, in, in these, you two once walked in the past. In these two, you once walked, uh, when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices, and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. See him connecting that right back to Jesus again, putting that as the target, as the mark, right? Now look, he says you are either dead in sin, as he talked about in chapter 2, verse 13, you were dead in sin. You're either dead in sin or you are dead to sin. That's an important distinction that he wants to make, right? You're either dead in sin because that's the way you live. That's what identifies you. That's what marks you. That is what characterizes you. That is your quality. You are dead in sin. Sin is your identity. Or you are dead to sin. That old you is gone. You put off the old self. You're dead to sin and you're alive in Christ. That's his, his dichotomy that he puts there. That's, the, that's where the tension is. We're still works in progress. We're still being built up and established. We're still growing in faith. We're being sanctified. We're being transformed, all that kind of stuff. But, and, uh, and Paul is, it, it, he, he very uh, strangely makes it sound like it's just a, a flip of a switch instead of a process. He makes it sound like you used to walk in all these, these uh, sins. You used to walk in, in, uh, in sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, anger, wrath, malice, slander. You used to do that, but not anymore. But then we sit there and go, wait a minute. I still struggle with that kind of, I still have a bad temper. I still struggle with lust. I still have this, this issue. And it doesn't feel like, uh, like we've just put off the old self and put on the new. It feels like we still are in the process of this, figuring this out, wrestling with it all our lives. Paul says, 
you, uh, you've put on the new self. Have we? Right? Do we feel new? Did you, uh, did you wake up one day and just go, yeah, I'm a Christian. And then all of a sudden, everything just kind of made sense and lined up. And then you haven't had a struggle ever since? Of course not. And that's kind of why in the middle of verse 10, he, uh, he gives this hint of the reminder of what's happening. Look at verse 10. It says, you've put on, uh, you've put on the new self. And the question is, have we? And then he, here's how he qualifies. He says, you've put on the new self, and the new self is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Now, there's something uh, about this, this section here. Oh, if you notice, there are three lists that he kind of goes through. I want to I just kind of address the fact that there are three lists here real fast and then kind of get back to this idea of that uh, we're in a process, right? But there are these three lists, and uh, the lists uh, are, are something I want to talk about because we have this way of thinking that lists are exhaustive boundaries, you know, when uh, when we have a list of, uh, of things to do, like a, a shopping list, buy the stuff on the shopping list, and as soon as you reach the end of that list, you're done. When you have a to-do list, you check off everything that you do as you do it, and when you get to the bottom of that list and everything's checked off, you're done. And so when we look at a, a list like this, you know, when we uh, look at the list that, that Paul gives, he's like, put off this stuff, and he lists off stuff. And so we think, okay, I just got to tick that off, tick, 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 and I'm done. And we have this issue when uh, when this rich young ruler guy comes and t- talks to Jesus in the Gospels, and he's like, uh, Jesus, what do I have to do to have eternal life? And Jesus kind of lists off some commandments, and the guy goes, yeah, 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 I do all that. So he has this, this, this false confidence, you know, he has this idea that because he does all that, he's done. And yet, uh, I wanna, I wanna address this because that's not the way that the list is used in, uh, in, in Paul's writing. You know, when he, when he lists the fruit of the Spirit, people, uh, think that there are nine things that come from the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Right? And it sounds like there are these nine things. That's what comes from the Spirit. And, and it's, it just oddly leaves out things like thanksgiving, humility, wisdom, generosity. But we know that those are things that come from the Spirit. So that list is not meant to be exhaustive, and neither are these, right? These are lists that just give you some examples to give you an idea of what he's trying to say. List number one that he gives, he's like, uh, put to death uh, sexual sins like sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. Those are just categorically, those are kind of sexual sins, right? And then uh, list number two, he says, put away anger sins like anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk, and lying, right? That just, he's just listing off bad things and he's saying, get rid of that stuff. Put off the old self. And he, he, uh, he reminds you, God's wrath is coming against this stuff. Right? This is the kind of lifestyle, this is the kind of behavior, this is the kind of uh, a value system that God is going to destroy. Put away that kind of stuff. And it's not like these lists are exhaustive lists where if you just get through all of those lists, then you're good. It, that's not it. That, that would give you a false confidence. He's saying just put off the stuff that, uh, that, that God is going to get rid of. And there, there are things that Paul doesn't even um, include in this list that should be included. You know, things like laziness, violence, doubt, addiction, mysticism, pride, arrogance, etc. Right? There are a lot of other sins that you should also take off. 
So don't, don't get thrown off by the list thinking I just got to go through the list and, and, and check it off. Don't, don't, get, uh, don't get distracted by that, right? Uh, they're there to give you the idea, stop acting like your old worldly self. Stop acting like, uh, like the, the self that is going to lead to death and shame. These, the, the, the items that he, he puts out here, they're just examples to help you understand what he means by your old self, what was earthly in you, what was sinful in you. And all of these uh, are, are there to revolve around how we lived our lives to gratify our own, in, uh, our own impulses. They all have to do with how we relate to one another, if you notice. Our, they're all relational. It's how we regard people. It's how we treat people. Right? These are all sins in, in, in which we, uh, we treat people poorly or regard, regard them uh, incorrectly, improperly. Right? These, are, uh, these are the marks of a self-centered kind of relationship, a sin-centered regard. There's a third list that he says in verse 11. He's like, uh, there's not Greek and Jew, uh, circumcised, uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave-free. You know, he kind of has this other list here. And when he lists that, that also isn't meant to be an exhaustive list. He's just saying like, look, anyone who's in Christ, no matter where you're from and stuff, no matter what you used to be, none of that matters, right? Whether you used to be Greek or Jew, meaning Gentile, non-Jewish or Jewish, that doesn't matter to God anymore, right? That's not... That's not the, that's not the dividing line. Whether you were circumcised or uncircumcised, ceremonially, religiously, that, that doesn't matter. Barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, that doesn't matter. In Galatians 3, he, uh, kind of has the same list and he includes male or female, that doesn't matter. Right? Anyone who wants to come to Jesus can come to Jesus and it doesn't matter what your ethnic background is, your religious background, geographical origin, social status, or your gender. Those things are, are things that, uh, that aren't uh, qualifiers to the Lord to, you know, that you have to be this in order to, to reach him. And that, it was this understanding in Israel that you had to be Jewish, male, rich, healthy. That's what, that's what it took to be blessed. And that's, that's what it took to approach God and stuff and, and ceremonially clean. But Paul is saying, no, that, that's not it. Those things aren't, aren't what, uh, what God is looking at. He's, he's just looking at whether or not your heart belongs to Jesus. That's what he's looking at. It crosses every uh, every boundary, you know, and, uh, and and Paul proves this. By the way, Paul is, uh, you know, he, he's not just he's not just talking. He he proves it because he's got all these people that he surrounds himself with, and they come from all sorts of different backgrounds. He has this guy, you know, like just at the end of this book in chapter four, like verse seven and on, you have like a list of people that he talks about, like this guy uh, Tychicus or Tychicus. I don't know how to say his name, right? But uh, and when we get there. I'm going to try to figure it out, but this guy, he's a, he's a messenger. You have this other guy, Onesimus, he's a slave. And then you have this guy, Aristarchus, who's a prisoner. Uh, and then you have um, this guy named Mark, who's the cousin of Barnabas. And Mark was so useless and nondescript that he's just identified as the cousin of someone who's a little bit more recognizable. And if you want to hear a little bit more about him, you can go to the uh, the first sermon in the Gospel of Mark that we went through called the... Uh, uh, marked for life. That's the name of that sermon. But that guy is a nobody. He's like the professional shadow. Just he's nothing. Then uh, Paul has this guy Justice, whose name was Jesus, but everybody made him change his name because no one's going to go around calling himself Jesus anymore. So they're like, from now on, you're Justice. He had Epaphras, who was a pastor. He had Luke, who was a doctor. 
He had Nympha, who was a, a, a woman that hosted a church. He had Archippus and, uh, and Philemon. You know, and he had all these different people. Philemon was a, a wealthy uh, slave owner and landowner. So he had people from all sorts of different social statuses, different gender, different regional backgrounds, different uh, ethnic background, etc. And so he said, none of that matters. We're all fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. Right? That was something that he believed in. He had a, an eclectic group different nationalities and religious histories and regions and social status and gender, all that stuff. And Paul says it doesn't matter. As long as we belong to Christ, that's the thing that unites us. That's the thing that uh, that marks us out. Nothing divides us if we belong to Jesus. He says your whole life is hidden with Christ. Your whole life. Nothing else becomes your identity, not not your, your, you know, your, uh, the country you come from, not your sexual orientation. Those things are not identities. And if you hold on to those as identities, your life is not hidden with Christ. You're putting your life into that. Christ is all that you are. He is all and he's in all. He's in all the people that have pledged their lives to him. And he is everything to those people. Now that, that new life you have in Jesus. This newness of life, this, this whole new identity, this whole new belonging, this whole new category that you now fit in. It doesn't, it doesn't come as a result of successfully battling against temptation. Do you ever feel that way? Like, uh, you know, um, if, if I successfully resisted temptation today, if I successfully resisted him, now there's newness of life. I feel the newness of life. And we kind of think that, you know, like, as long as I, I, I perform well, I have newness. Which, so we think newness is kind of like this result, a prize that we can, like, earn up to. That's the, that, that's a, a, an easy way to regard it. We just think, oh, I want to know what it's like to feel like I'm alive in Christ. And so I just gotta, I gotta be, you know, uh, I gotta use my willpower and resist against temptation and stuff. And as long as I'm good, then I know what it's like to be a Christian. And that's not at all the way that part, uh, that Paul says it. He says newness in Jesus is not an end point. It's a starting point. You are new. Now express it. You are new. Now exercise it. Be who you are. You were a sinner. Now you're a saint. There was an old you. Now there's a new you. So stop wearing the old you. That's not you. Put on the new you. Because that's who you really are. When you trust in Jesus, there's this whole new nature that takes place. That you know, you're a new creation, a new nature, a second nature, a Christ nature that begins this whole new chapter in your life, a whole new direction. When you trust in Jesus, transformation happens, yes, but it's not instant. It's it's not an overnight 100% done deal. It it the status change is complete. And now it's going to take the rest of your life to show it, to manifest it, to evidence it in the way that you live. When uh, you ever had that moment where you, you, you graduate high school and, um, and I don't know, either you, you start working or you start going to, uh, to you know, more school, more, you go to college or something, right? I ended up going to college against my will. 
I did not apply to college. My friends applied to college. They're not my friends anymore. But there was a, a moment where I graduated high school. I, I walked down the aisle. They gave me the, the, the thing that looks like a diploma, but your diploma's not really in it. You have to go pick that up after the ceremony. I had that thing. And you're supposed to throw your cap up in the air and all that stuff. And we, we just go, hey, we're done. We're done. And in my mind, I'm like, okay, I guess we're done. And then I found out that uh, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm going to, uh, to go to college. So I'm a Bruin. You know, I go to UCLA. Okay. I didn't feel like a Bruin. I was standing at the, uh, at the graduation ceremony of my high school, and it, there was nothing in me that said, I'm a Bruin. My status, though, had completely changed. I was already enrolled against my will in college. I had to go there. I already, like, you know, if, if I didn't show up, I would have failed. I would have, uh, you know, I would have been expelled because my status was I was a student at UCLA against my will. And I, you know, I had graduated high school and then I had to go to, you know, through summer vacation, kind of mentally prepping, like, okay, I have to go to college eventually. And then, uh, I had to go to orientation. They, they, you know, shipped me off to, to the campus and I had to stay there, enroll in classes and all that stuff and get to know the dorms and the, the you know, and the classroom buildings and all that stuff and where the library was and all that kind of stuff. And I walked around and slowly as I actually started, you know, like, going through these kinds of things, when I stopped doing the high school thing and started doing the college thing, slowly I started to get what it was like. Now, it's not like because I did orientation and enrolled in classes and then walked around the campus and then stayed at the dorms and all that stuff. It's not because of that stuff that I became a Bruin. That wasn't it. My status had changed already beforehand. And then I was just kind of coming to realize it. When you get married, the same thing will happen to you. You will become a husband or a wife. Your status will completely change, and it's going to take you a while to realize it. Right? People are going to go like, dude, you're married. How's married life? And you're like, it hasn't hit me yet. Fool, you're like two months in. You know? What are you doing? But it's going to take a while to kind of set in. And until you start, like, you start paying bills together and making decisions and, you know, that kind of stuff, and then you start to get it, and you're like, oh, wait, hold on. And it takes a, it takes a long time to, uh, to get a rhythm on that. Married folks, if you feel like you're taking a long time to get a rhythm on your marriage, that's normal. Dating folks, engaged folks, good luck, right? Don't think that post-wedding, like all of a sudden everything's going to be easy and stuff. It, it'll take you a while to get it. It'll take you a while. The same thing has happened, has happened when you came to faith. Your status changed. You now fully belong to Jesus. There's a new you. It's going to take you a while to get it. Now stop acting like the high school and start acting like the college. Right? Stop acting like the old you, the earthly you, the sinful you. Start acting like the new you, the Christ in you. Right? That's who you are. That's what happens when you believe in Jesus. The, the, the change in status is instant. But the process of realizing it and then exercising it and expressing it is lifelong. That's, that's what happens. The way that you were, you used to be. Now let's look at the way that he is, right? Here's the Apostle Paul, and he, he's going to tell you that, uh, like, stop being the way that you were, and he's, he's going to say, be the way that he is, right? That's the new you. 
the new you, your life is with Christ. Christ is your life. So what do you live like? You live like Christ. You live the way that he is. Right? So I want to just kind of set our expectations. You're going to get a list here also in verses 12 through 17. You're going to get a list. It's not an exhaustive list. It's just some of the examples and what we act like when we put on the new self. It's some of the examples we, uh, that we uh, live like when we start living like Jesus. Right? We, we go through different ways that we're to be. And just, just watch how when he goes through these things, he keeps connecting you back to Jesus, saying that's your life. It's not immorality. It's not anger. It's not covetousness and idolatry, meaning some other God. It's Jesus. Jesus is your God. Jesus is your center. He's your mark. That's what it is. And uh, and all the things that he's going to name here are ways to imitate Jesus or to cherish Jesus. Right, but he's going to be in the center of it all, they, uh, and they're going to they're going to uh, again be in how we regard one another and how we treat one another. Right, chapter uh, three, verse twelve through seventeen, it says, "Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you." so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which you indeed were called in one body, and be thankful. And let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another with all wisdom, uh, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Now, do you see what Paul is doing here, right? He's, he's telling the Colossians, and, and he's telling us, to put on the stuff that describes Jesus. Put on the stuff that describes Jesus because he is your life now. Compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, forgiveness, love, peace, unity, thankfulness. These are things that Jesus exemplified perfectly. And Paul is saying, put that stuff on. It's not meant to be an exhaustive list. Those are just some of the examples of Christ's nature. Exercise it. And if there's something else, exercise it. Paul is telling a group of diverse individuals with different ethnic, religious, geographical, and social backgrounds the same thing. He's saying that you can all belong in the same community because this is the thing that makes you belong. Right? You belong in one community, function and, functioning and living together as one body. Right? Every part of a body works together to, to make the one body work well. This collection of people who otherwise have nothing else in common they can have the peace of Christ ruling over them if they dwell on the word of Christ, doing everything in word or deed in the name of Christ. Right, Dwelling on the word of Christ. Uh, he, he's telling that to Colossians. He's like, dwell on the word of Christ. And you know they weren't even literate back then. right? So how would they do that? They would sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Right? It's way easier to memorize songs and to sing that. And then you go, oh, I get it, I get it. And that's how they would understand their doctrine and stuff. That's why it would all be written down in poetic form. That's why so much of the Bible is poetry. Look at all the, the prophetic books and stuff. Right? Look at so many moments in the New Testament. That poetry and the, and the songs, the way that, that they would sing it, that's how they would remember it. That's how they would teach one another and admonish one another. They would be singing these songs and they'd be, they'd be encouraged or rebuked in their hearts. Think of how different that is 
from, uh, from the influences that were sprouting up around the, the church in Colossae, right? Remember in uh, chapter 2, verse 16, there are people who are passing judgment, condemning each other on issues that were unrelated to Jesus, like, you know, whether or not they kept a kosher diet or were circumcised or kept the Sabbath days and stuff. People were judging one another and saying, oh, you don't belong. You don't belong because you didn't do the thing. You don't belong because you didn't go through this, this ritual, this process. And so they were, they were, uh, they were passing judgment. In chapter two, verse 18, there were people that were disqualifying each other, excluding one another because they, uh, they didn't adhere to the same asceticism or the worship of angels or, or visions or mystical things. You know, they, they were just, they were using all these other things that weren't, they, they weren't Jesus. But they were saying, like, if you don't have this thing, then, oh, you're really not part of our group. And they had this, these other qualifiers. If you fashion your church around anything that isn't Jesus, you're off target. You've missed the mark. You are in sin. If your church is built on, you know, if, if, if it says the, the real people that belong in our church are the ones that speak in tongues. The real people that belong in our church have to be Calvinist. The real people that belong in our church have to subscribe to our hipster coffee. Right? If, it's, if it's the real people that, uh, that belong in our church have to love our famous personality that, that leads our church, if it's something like that, th- that'll become the basis by which people have to belong to the church. That'll become the issue over which people divide in the church. And it's not Christ. And the church will be off-center, be missing the mark. That'll be a church in sin. Paul says that the issue that makes someone belong, the unifying issue that brings peace is Christ. And it's Christ alone. Let the peace of Christ rule. He is life. He is the answer. He is the solution. He is the center. He is the mark. He alone is what you need to belong to the church. He alone characterizes how we treat one another. Every relationship you have is affected by by trusting Jesus. the, The rest of the chapter is just going to show you the way that it looks, right? When Jesus is the center, when, when he's the center of your relationships, every aspect of how you regard and how you treat people gets affected. It's not just how we come to church and sing songs and, and listen to sermons and stuff. Everything. It's going to follow you home. It's going to follow you at your workplace. It's going gonna, it's gonna to affect the way that you parent. It's going to affect the way that you are a child to your parent, This is what he says in in chapter 3, verse 18, all the way to chapter 4, verse 1. It says, Wives, submit to your husband as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Bond servants, meaning uh, slaves or even you can say indentured servants, you can say employees if you want to update the language. Uh, Employees, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord, Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Chapter 4, verse 1. Masters, treat your bondservants. Employers, treat your employees justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Now, each of those relationships that we just talked about in, in that little section there, each one can be their own sermon, can't they? And I promise someday they will be. We'll get there, but 
I don't want you to lose the plot, right? Paul is trying to uh, is trying to give you the big picture here, right? He's not he's not writing each of these separate lines to try to fix marriages or families or workplace relationships. He's saying that if you belong to Christ, let it show in the way that you treat everyone in every context of your life. Everywhere you go, you're either going to be a husband or a wife or a child or a parent or an employee or an employer. You're going to, you're going to be one of those things wherever you're, you're going. You're going to, you're going to have all different contexts of, of how you relate to people. And the fact that Christ is in the center of you, it will affect your relationship to everyone. There's no exception. People who think that they should separate church from work and from home, Paul says you missed it. You missed the mark. You've centered on something else. Christ is all and is in all. Christ is your life. If you got categories in which you exclude him, he's not your life. You've centered on something else. You don't know him. These were revolutionary instructions. These, uh, the things that, that Paul's saying here were, were countercultural in every way. The, uh, the tamest, out of all the things that he said, the tamest one is the one that triggers people the most today. It says, wives, submit, uh, submit your husbands. Right? That one was just like a no-brainer for, for that passage in that society back in that day. Today, it's like that's the controversial one. Nobody wants to read that one. Everyone tries to fix it in some way. But here's Paul, and he's like, you know, wives submit to your husbands. Everyone's like, okay. And then he gets to like the hard stuff. He says, husbands, love your wives. And for us today, that seems like it's supposed to be a given. You know, husbands love your wife. The reason why you asked her to marry you is because you, you love her, right? You're in love with her and stuff, and so you love her. It seems like it, it's a given. It's no duh. It'd be, it'd be you know, um, assumed that husbands love their wives. But here's Paul, and he has to instruct husbands to love their wives because at that time, that was ludicrous. Marriage was not based on, on, uh, on romance. It was not based on, uh, you know, on finding the one and stuff. Why does the Bible not talk about finding the one? Because that idea was so foreign, right? It's just, like parents decided who you got married. Try that on. Right? Parents decided who you got married and, uh, who you got married to, and then you just ended up with them, and over time, if you were lucky, maybe you ended up loving this person. But m- marriage was functional. It was a, this unequal accord between a man and a woman to produce legitimate heirs. That was it. Women had no rights. The, the man was in charge. What he said just goes. Commanding husbands to love their wives and not be harsh with their wives. That was this, that was the countercultural way of doing marriage. That was the, that was the way that, uh, that it vindicated women, gave them, gave them, uh, value in this, in the society of God. If you want to get technical, the, you know, the way he says, uh, do not be harsh, that's in the passive voice, meaning do not be, uh, do not, do not be resentful. Do not, uh, you know, like, do, do not be embittered toward. Right? It's not just don't act mean. It's don't be this way at her. Right? Don't, don't, don't be unloving in her direction. See, because anyone could just prevent themselves and restrain themselves from actively doing something mean, actively being harsh. But, but the, the, the way that the greed comes off, it's like don't be in that state, in that condition. Don't be in an unloving condition toward your wife. Every time he, he, he's telling these people, you know, how, how to, re, uh, to live toward one another, Christ is, is in the center of it. Parents are being told they can't just parent however they want. In verse 21, right? Despite the fact that children in that day were property. 
right? They had no rights. So, same with employees, right? Uh, bond servants, they didn't have rights either. And yet, uh, employees and employees, they're, they're given, they're given instructions too. Bond servants, employees, they're, they're given a work ethic. Regardless of whether or not your boss is a good person or a scumbag, he says, work the right way because Christ is in you. Because you work for Christ. And he's your Lord. And he tells the masters, the employers, he's like, treat your, your bond servants who had zero rights, who were property, treat your bond servants with justice and fairness. That was unheard of in that day. Don't exploit them. Don't, don't try to make as much money as you can and treat them, you know, with, uh, with as little regard and as little care as you can. He's like, you have a master too. How do you want that master to treat you? Treat your employees the same way. Each of these relationships is accountable to the Lord. Out of the nine verses, seven times Jesus is, is mentioned as Lord. And one time as master, which is a cooler word. But that's what it looks like. Every context of your life gets, gets messed with, flipped upside down, countercultural, where the whole world would look at that and go like, wait, that's weird. That's not how we do it. The way you parent, the way that you treat your parents, the way that you work, the way that you treat your bosses, the way that you love your, your spouse, the way that you submit to your spouse. It's a complete mystery to the whole world. That's the way that Jesus is. That's the way that it looks. Well, how do we, how do we make this work? Right? How do we make this, how, how do, how do we get this engine going? Because I feel like, uh, the Bible tells me that, uh, sure, I died to my old self and I got this new self and I just gotta stop acting like my old self and I gotta put on the new self. And I, I sit there and I start going, okay, I just gotta really try hard. I gotta just really try hard and muster up as much willpower as I can. Do you notice that, uh, that that's not the way that Paul is trying to motivate you? Right? You know, one thing he does, the, the, the thing I love about the Apostle Paul, the thing I love about Jesus, and the thing that, that, uh, in, I guess, as a result, the thing that I absolutely abhor about the church at times, Paul does not try to motivate you by guilt. You have to know that. He doesn't try to motivate you by guilt. He doesn't go, why'd you do that? Why'd you do that? You know, you're, you're such a sinner. You're so wrong. He doesn't sit there and just leave you there in, in, in your guilt wallowing, marinating in, in your own wickedness. He doesn't do that. He doesn't. He says, that's the old you. Stop acting like the old you. Don't do that. That's been paid for. He doesn't try to make you pay for it. He says, all that sin and stuff, that, that's nailed to a cross. It's dead and gone. Leave it there. And he invites you to something better. He, he calls you, he summons you into something bigger and better, not bound for death and shame. He says, this, this train is bound for glory. Right? Don't you want that instead? Why would you want to live like this? And he doesn't use guilt to motivate you. He's, he uses Christ to motivate you. He says, look, this is the way Jesus is. It's so much better. Don't live like this. This is foolishness. This is the stuff that's going to decay. This is the stuff that's just going to lead to hurt and pain and despair. This is the stuff that's going to lead to glory and peace and joy. Get on this train. Act like the new you. This is the one that has the promise. The New Testament 
never calls a Christian a sinner. Never. And we hear it all the time in church. I'm not saying we don't sin, but I am saying that's not your identity. The Apostle Paul, he'll say, like, you know, yeah, I'm a Christian, and I, I do what I don't want to do, and I don't do what I want to do, and I struggle with this, and, you know, wretched man that I am, and he's talking about this whole process of sanctification. You know, he's become a Christian, and after his conversion, here he is wrestling with sin. But he doesn't say, I am a sinner. He doesn't say that. Only when he references his past, he's like, I used to murder Christians all the time. Out of everyone that I'm talking to, I'm the chief of sinners. He'll say that in reference to his history not to who he is today. When he talks about himself today, he says, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. For to me, to live is Christ. That's what he says. The New Testament calls you a new creation. New Testament says, you were dead in sin. You were a sinner. Now you're alive in Christ. You are a saint. The New Testament calls you a child of God. Did you ever notice the first couple verses in all of Paul's letters? He's like, I'm Paul, an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ, and my buddy Timothy, or you know whoever else is with him. And he's like, to the saints at Colossae, to the faithful in Philippi. He doesn't go to the bunch of sinners in Corinth. He doesn't do that. That's not what you are. Yes, you struggle with sin. So functionally, fine. You're a sinner. That's not your identity. Your identity is a saint. A set-apart person for the Lord. Paul doesn't motivate you by guilt. Neither does Jesus. All the guilt that you deserve, all the punishment, is fully acknowledged as being paid for on the cross, right? There is no, like, now you should be punished further. There's none of that. It is paid for in full. So what kind of church does God want us to be? Well, th this church is going to do our best to follow that model. Guilt is not going to be our motivator. Sin is not going to be our identity. Punishment is not going to be our leverage, right? We can warn about sin because it leads to hurt and it leads to, to pain and despair, we can warn, but we're not going to threaten. That's just not going to work. How, how will we get you to live the right way? How are we going to get you to live the right way? Answer to that, that's not our job. It's not. That, that honestly is between you and God. That's between you and the Lord. Our job is just to reveal to you who Jesus is. Help you get to know the Savior. That's it. No additional pressure is necessary. We don't need to coerce you to, uh, you know, to, I don't know, pressure you in some kind of weird way. If, if you see who Jesus is, if you see who he is and what he does, hopefully you'll just trust him. And if you end up coming to trust him, then you get to decide what to do. And when you see that your life is incongruent with his, you change your mind, you repent. And you just trust the way that he does it. That's not our job to, to do that to you. That's, that's between you and the Lord. We just want to present to you an accurate, bright, and thorough picture of who he is so that you can know the Savior. You know how the Apostle Paul says it? 
He doesn't say, try really hard. He doesn't say, uh, use all of your willpower. He doesn't. He says, set your mind. Set your mind. Right? Those first four verses of chapter 3. Set your mind on things above. Set your mind on the things of Christ. Set your mind. The body will follow. Right? If the wrath of God is coming after sin, if that's how God feels towards sin, what do we feel toward it? Where is our mind? Because oftentimes our mind celebrates the things that we shouldn't be celebrating. And, and that's where Paul is saying, set your mind on Christ. Right? Uh, we, uh, we get so addicted to it, our, our love for sin, sexual sin, anger, sin, whatever kind of sin, right? Whether it's sexual sin or anger sin. If we're, if we're bluntly honest, the orgasm has replaced the cross as the focus of our longing and the image of our fulfillment. The desire to hate and to harm seems to provide us a stronger sense of purpose and virtue rather than forgiveness and reconciliation. It is easy for us to, uh, to think, oh, I'm a Christian now, so I'm forgiven of my sin, right? I'm forgiven of my sin, so no one should get on my case anymore. I'm free. Everyone, like, no one can, can make me feel guilty anymore. And so we regard that as freedom to sin. Uh, I'm saved, I'm forgiven, so it's kind of okay for me now to sin because I'm forgiven anyway, right? Right? Don't we think, oh, it's okay if I indulge in this little bit of wrong because I've got my ticket to heaven. And so it's easy for us to regard our salvation as freedom to sin. But the Bible presents this entirely different perspective, saying you don't have to live like that anymore. You don't have to live in the brokenness of that. Your salvation means you have freedom from sin. It no longer is your master. You're not a slave to it anymore. The power of the flesh and the devil in the world is broken. Because of Jesus' work on the cross, it's done. Why would you live in that? Why? And we have to stop and zoom out and think about it and go, where does this lead? And then where does he lead? Set your mind on the things above. Set your mind on on Christ. Too often we want to stop sinning just because of the, the virtue of the fact that it's wrong. I don't want to sin. Why? Because it's wrong. Like that's, that's the ex explanation, right? The concept of right and wrong is not this independent moral construct. From where does it come? Right? The driving desire in our mind shouldn't be attached to, I want to do what's right or I don't want to do what's wrong. It, it has, right and wrong are not a, a real thing. There's just the simple idea, I want to be like Jesus. I want to love what he loves. I want to hate what he hates. Right? It's not this ethereal standard of right and wrong floating out in the ether somewhere. It's not, it's not that. It's Here's Jesus. Here's what he loves. That's where it leads. That's what I want. Set your mind on things above where he is. Your life is hidden with him. He is your life. He is all. He is in all. That's why we don't get these exhaustive lists of what to do and not do. Those are just examples, right? The point isn't to check off the items on the list. We find ourselves uh, attempting to fix our lives. We come into sermons looking for the application section, right? We look for the application section. Like, okay, what am I supposed to do? And that's what we want to write down. So we want to take the notes on, you know? What, what do I need to do? What are the three steps to holiness this Sunday? I want to write that stuff down. Like if I just do the things, then I'm good. And there's newness. It's not true. If you just trust Jesus, you have newness. Your status has changed. You're his. You belong to him. Your life is with him. That just 
Just set your mind on him. Set your mind on him. Don't, don't look for the three things to do. Find out who he is. Find out who he is. Right? Think about what it, what it said in, uh, in, in, in chapter 3, verse 10, right? It said, uh, you put on the new self. That's a complete change in your status. Fine. You don't, you don't have to try to, to earn it. You, just, you got that. It happened. And it's being renewed. It's a process. It's being renewed. That means every day it's happening. It's constantly happening. Right? You are being renewed. Not you were renewed the moment you became a Christian. You are being renewed. You're being renewed in knowledge. How do you, how do you become more transformed? It's, it's in knowledge of, of whom? Of Jesus. Right? The more you know Jesus, the more you know how to live. It's, it's not the list of to-dos in the application section in the sermon. It's just, what's Jesus? Love. I love that too then. What's Jesus? Hey, I hate that too then. Why? Because Jesus is the object of my, he is my life. And that makes you renewed after the image of your creator, right? And creator, by the way, if you, if you understand chapter one, verse 16, that's Jesus. All things were made by him, through him, and for him. The transformation that takes place when you become a Christian, the lifelong transformation is one that makes you more like him because that's your mark. That's your target. That's what you're centering on. And then the way that you treat everyone around you, every relationship you have will just by, by consequence evidence the change in your nature. You're not living for yourself anymore. You're living for him. And that radically redefines the way that you treat God and each other and yourself. You've been raised with Christ. Your life is hidden with Christ. And you will be revealed in glory with Christ. That's a past, present, and future process. You've been raised with Christ. You are hidden with Christ. And you will be revealed in glory with Christ. Your life is Christ. You don't need any other mediator or ritual or divine revelation. You have access to God. You never have to wonder if He hears you or cares about you. You have no reason to think that you'll ever lose Him. He doesn't lose things, and so He certainly won't lose you. Your true glory will come when He returns in glory. This is not your final state. This is not your final condition. You are being renewed every day. And the more you get to know Him, the more the transformation will take place. It's not the application stuff. It's not just, what do I do? What do I do? What do I do? It's, who is he? What is he like? What does he love? And the more you know that, the more you know him, the more you become like him. So enough with the old ways of doing things. Put on the new self. Put on the Christ nature. Get to know who he is. Trust in him. Start acting like him. Sin will break your relationships with God, with each other, with yourself. And Jesus knows a better way. Why go back to the broken road that leads to doom and destruction, that leads to wrath and shame? The way of life will seem like foolishness. Only a few will find it. But it'll be aimed right at Jesus. He'll be in the center of it. And it won't be, it won't be on sin. It won't lead to death and shame. It'll be centered on Christ who, with whom your life is hidden. Who is God? Who leads you not to death and shame, but to glory? If you believe it, say amen. Let's pray.
Father, we pray that you would do a work to help us soak this in. It is in our nature to think that the secret to life, that the solution to our problems is in our hands and we just have to do the thing on the list. We just have to apply the applications. But we're not the solution and it's not in our control. You're the answer. You are the Savior. You are life for us. And so we pray, God, that we would just stop trying to do it ourselves on our own willpower. And instead, we would just soak in the fact that you have brought us by your grace into your kingdom, into your community. And you have revealed yourself to us. And the more we get to know you, the more it guides us into who we are. We pray, God, that we wouldn't sit there and try to think of a, a list of things to do on how we're supposed to treat one another so that at the end of it we would feel like we're good or feel like we're new. And we just pray, Lord, that we would set our minds on Jesus do our best to be like Him. All those other relationships will sort themselves out if we love what Jesus loves and hate what Jesus hates. Even in regards to our sin, Lord, pray that we wouldn't sit there and try to look for some moral principle that exists outside of everything else in the world. No, there's just you. We just pray that we'd be like you. Bless this church. Help us to center on you and you alone. Help us, Lord, to keep Jesus as our mark, as our target. That that would be what brings us together and that there would be nothing that divides us. May we trust in you, Christ our Savior. May we be your people. And may this be a Christ-centered church. All this we pray for Christ's glory in His name. Amen.